I think you're going to find there's nothing there. I have no regrets. I'm following what the lawyers have told me they want me to do. It's exactly what we're doing. There's no there there. Thank you. Democrats were shuddering privately just a few days ago about how big the margin was going to be. Republicans were predicting a red wave, but they may end up with the same slim majority Democrats have had for the last two years. We are going to take the House back. But we've got so much more to do, and I have only begun to fight. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve... For our children, Welcome back to a big week on the program, the Variety program. I feel great about this, fellas. We got a lot of good content ahead of us. We really do. I guess in a little bit, you know, we're going to get to hear from Mike Pompeo. Who, yeah. That interview was incredible. I it learned was. a lot, at, you know. Uh, before we started, I, I, I said point blank to him, can I ask, like, basically anything? Because I've heard a lot of stories about, like, CIA and stuff. He was like, yeah. <laughs> so that's yeah. exciting. It's good. And it's also, you know, look, he hasn't made any announcements about whether he's running in 2024 or not. It seems to me like he's making all the kind of moves that one would make if you are. And so we've heard from a lot of potential candidates for president, but not in the cycle. This is the first mm-hmm. one in the cycle of many, many more. So I hope you all enjoy that. Uh, you know, on another note, we talked a little football at the beginning of last week, uh, making note that the Cincinnati Bengals were the only team represented at this table still in it. And by gosh, they still are. We were down three starting linemen. <laughs> You're going to go back into that? We were down two starters on defense. God, Jesus. These are, these are all the and talkers, by- too. It's like I was texting everybody. I was like, Bengals are going to win this, man. I said to everybody, point blank, they're going to win. You believed in them from the start. From yeah, the start. there's no question about that. Believe it. The- <laughs> like they weren't in the Super Bowl last year. <laughs> this is the funniest thing about Ashbrook's fandom is it's like this chip on the shoulder you know, nobody believes in us, Midwest, you know, cynicism. You guys were in the Super Bowl last year. It's like, you can't be both the underdog and the team that always wins. Bro, they put but, spaghetti in their chili. I'd always have a chip on my shoulder. Like, times are tough in Cincinnati. People, people always dog the Midwest. They always overlook Cincinnati. And I think last year they learned that it's a bad idea to do that. And, uh, and this year, at least Buffalo learned the same thing. <laughs> I do. You know, one of the funniest dynamics about uh, our NFL fandom, we all follow each other's stuff. You recall the Ruthless Parlay where we all kind of throw and we did it once and it really worked one, out. One time and it worked. It worked out well. Um, but the funniest dynamic that I think there is is like I've sort of taken to the Bengals as like a Midwestern akin spirit where they have a tortured fan base and I'm like I'm with it. Thank you. Duncan roots against all of our teams. <laughs> Yeah, because you guys were assholes. No, dude, you guys were assholes about Great the Colts reason, losing. To be honest. You guys dunk on me all in the group chat all season, no. and now you want to be like, oh, boys, solidarity. There was solidarity. There was no solidarity when you guys were tomahawk dunking on me and the Colts. And yeah, I mean, it's just absolutely absurd that now we're supposed to be all kumbaya. Bullshit. And you guys, you guys threw the first punch, and now you want me to root for your teams. You I'm were, not going to do it. You were rooting against the Vikings. Yes. Now you're rooting against the Bengals. Yes. That's I crazy. hope they lose. That's unreal. Unbelievable. Isn't it unbelievable, Smug? You would I mean, never do such crazy. a thing. Never, never. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm the guy who's sending out the text trying to cheer everybody hey. up. Hey, you know, there's a lot of time left in the game. Hey, Smug, let me, cha- let me change your mind real quick. Uh... 
the Monday after the final week of the regular season, I walked into this office. Ashbrook is like, hey, can you come in here real quick? And he's at his computer and he's looking up the uh, trade grades <laughs> of the Indianapolis Colts uh, offensive line. He's to, tr- to see who they could pick up, maybe. He's, tr- he's trying to take your team for parts. Right, right. Like, my team is in the scrap heap, <laughs> and and Ashbrook's over there sifting through it while he's still in the playoffs. <laughs> it's absolutely unbelievable. And he has the gall to sit there, the unmitigated gall to sit there and say, oh, why aren't you going to root for my team? Fuck you, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Fuck you, I'm not rooting for your team. You know Honestly, I think in the, the Colts definitely have to rebuild. If, I mean, when you have right. Jonathan Taylor and you play that terribly, I mean, there's a lot wrong there. Right. Yeah. There's if, a lot if, wrong. if I may, I was just attacked. So if I may, okay. Were you pleased with the Bengals' offensive performance against the Bills? Uh, yeah, I was pleased. I, okay. I was, okay. Let me stop you there. Okay. Let me stop you there. Uh, last week, we learned that the Bengals' offensive coordinator was headed to Indianapolis yes. to interview for the head coaching spot. Yeah. Oh, Would you be displeased if the Indianapolis Colts had an offense that looked a little bit more like the Cincinnati Bengals? Yeah, I would be. It oh, do, it I'd do, be displeased. It, well, it requires a quarterback, of yeah. course, which is more you know easier said than done. Well, I would disple- I would be displeased to hire somebody of such low moral character who has one foot out the door while he's on a playoff run. <laughs> the, guy, the guy's got to do an interview sometime. They're throwing a bunch of money in his face. Nah. <laughs> it's, it's, I think, they're like Jeff Saturday's not getting it done. I think, I think there's a lot of blame in Indianapolis to be put at the QB position, just like you know, you trade for like a big star. Like, you know, how long is Jonathan Taylor going to be, you know, a tier one quarterback? They don't have a lot of years. Get like a Russell Wilson. <laughs> get, get a get Russell a Wilson. Done. <laughs> See, I think these GMs should listen to the program 100%. because I think we could make their jobs a lot easier. These are they're all smart ideas. So. Before we, we get too far into the rest of the old program here, I also want to thank Megan Kelly. Oh, yeah. Because uh, we were on last week on Thursday. Wonderful program. And, you know, period- periodically when we go through the five-star ratings, we'll see some listeners who come in through, you know, have seen us on Megan Kelly. So Indeed. hopefully there's some new ones here today. Indeed. No, I'm happy to have you. It, always such a fun time. First of all, she's hilarious. Yeah. yeah. And this is such a good medium for her. Her show, if you haven't listened to it, you should. Because her, if you became acquainted with her and her sort of brand of Megyn Kelly through either Fox or a brief time at NBC, you get a little something different than that, right? You get like just a pure uncut yeah. Megan. And she's so funny. Yeah. And I mean, we always have such a blast. The topics she brings up are just unbelievable. Yeah. We always laugh our asses off. Yeah, she's off. the best. She is. Um, so one of the topics that we obviously have to get into, we talked about it last week, but it just keeps more and more developments. Mm-hmm. And rather than you having to sift through, like, again, as we talked about every paper in America trying to do their own Biden doc story, we sort of aggregate this into the things that you need to pay attention to that are new. Um, There was additional classified documents found at Biden's Delaware home again. Oh, no. And this one was a a Justice Department search. It dirty (laughs) says. that's, That's the thing is like. Okay, things are getting incredibly serious. Yeah. Well, you'll recall that this whole thing started out by, like, Biden had a couple of lawyers. They're like, hey, look, there's a document or two. Yeah. Yeah, we'd, we'd turned them over. It's all good. And, of course, using his lawyers to get that stuff. So these, these top secret documents have been out for six years. He's been in possession of them for six years illegally. 
he has his lawyers handle like transferring them over so he's got attorney-client privilege so they're like oh no you know I can't tell anybody. I can't be deposed and be like, "Yes, okay, these things are where did I secrets?" Yeah, right, right. And you don't know. Very ridiculous, like hunters like doing lines off this crate full of like <laughs> nuclear secrets. A rolled up classified doc. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my, my favorite part is that we're now two weeks removed from when Karine Jean Pierre <laughs> assured all of us six times in a row that the search had been completed. Yes, they're it, done. Nothing else to find. She assures us. In fact, it's not. And I, I was on um, uh, Fox News Sunday yesterday, and I was like, you know, it seems like every place this guy's had a cup of coffee for the last five years. Yeah. He's got like a treasure trove of documents, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, because you're, it, first it was his home, it was his office, it was a different office, it's the Penn Center, it's all. And like it, anywhere he's been, there's a document related to something somewhere. And now the Justice Department's involved with it. Doesn't sound good to me. No. It doesn't sound good to me. And I thought this is very key. So, you know, the the news reports and the articles have been saying that six additional items, including documents with classified markings, were found. But this is very important to note. And I saw a couple reporters note this as they said uh, the word items was used uh, a lot of specifically, specifically, which means each item could be like a crate. Of classified you documents. just don't know yeah it's not just like two sheets of paper and that you know raises the question of okay when the justice department is handling this investigation this time and 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 looking for all all these top secret documents why didn't they lay them out and have a little photo shoot why didn't we see that no nope, because why? his lawyers were the ones that were like the one procuring all of the information and so doj would come in and be like okay here and, it is and that's the thing is like so for every instance leading up to it now it was like oh, okay so the, the lawyers handed it over that's why we didn't have this like photo shoot of documents spread out to look super ominous that can be shared online like they did to president trump this time the justice department does it we don't get those photos and we don't have you know a a, a horde of journalists outside his delaware home being like where are the documents? Why are they here? Why is the Justice Department having to do this? Isn't it insanely irresponsible for a vice president who cannot, you know, declassify documents to be sitting on this for six years where they could be exposed to the Chinese donors who who, who give millions to your think tank or to your son who has literally driven around this country with a crack pipe on the dashboard? Right. <laughs> has been driving the car where these documents are? Like, this is a very crazy situation and and the like lack of curiosity from journalists and outrage when they were like the speculation that happened with trump where they were like he could have the nuclear launch code right it wasn't even speculation it was written yeah i mean that that stuff was written like wild speculation and like hunter biden isn't his son you know it's like like you could fill up 24 a 24 hour news cycle every single day with very well-sourced, credible speculation into what is going on with the Biden document. <laughs> it's pretty well documented from the laptop. You know, like, it would be very easy. But when it was Trump, it was like you had people like, you know, Clapper and Brennan on there, all, you know, all day, every day being like, oh, this is so sick. He's, he's committing treason. This makes me want to puke. Biden he's- himself? Yeah. On 60 Minutes said as much, <laughs> right? But like the documents, just to refresh everybody's memory, the documents that Trump had... We're all at Mar-a-Lago in one locked storage facility in a place that's, you know, guarded because it's a former president, right? So you know where that stuff is. Right. Now, I don't know the circumstances there. I'm certainly not excusing any sort of reckless 
uh, uh, disregard with in terms of like safety and protocol or whatever. I, it is what it is. But Biden, they're in his garage next to his Corvette. Yeah, they're at the office. They're just like hanging around. I mean, it's it's you get the picture. He's walking around like Carmen San Diego with like a little <laughs> a little classified doc. Yeah. everywhere he goes. And it's uh, like imagine the situation these documents were in when we saw these photos of Hunter Biden driving the Corvette. He was like, oh, you know, there were. They were always, you know, the, the statement, and I think Colonel Jean-Pierre even said, like, oh, they were always in an extremely secure location. The dude just had his vet sitting in there that sometimes his crackhead son would take for a spin. That's not like, you know, <laughs> Fort Knox. Right. They were These these documents were all over the place. And and, uh, and for some of the older listeners of the program and longtime Rush Limbaugh listeners, they will notice a striking familiarity to Joe Biden's documents showing up all over to his house to um, Sandy Berger. Sandy Berger! Who, uh, as one person put it, he had PDBs in his BVDs. <laughs> he literally was pushing these documents into his socks as he walked out of the National Archives. It was an old, a story during the Clinton years. Sandy Berger apparently had documents within the National Archives that he didn't want exposed to the public. And so he went to the National Archives under his security clearance and sorted through his old papers and grabbed him and put him in his own pants. My God. <laughs> Guys, it's so, and Rush made a big deal out of it, and clearly all of our audience laughed, and Joe Biden listened. Yeah. <laughs> what it sounds like. I do think between between that reference and the Carmen Sandiego reference, I mean, this the is a real boomer start. This is a boomer start. I love it. <laughs> We're off to a good start. Yeah. Well, anyway, the documents, according to NBC News, that were at the Wilmington, Delaware home, uh, appear to be related to his time as vice president as well as his tenure in the U.S. Senate. Mm. U.S. Senate. We're talking 2008, guys. Uh, and were found after Biden's counsel offered full access to the premises as the department investigates his possession of classified information. Bob Bauer, Biden's personal attorney, said in a statement. Also, they're like, oh, yes, we offered them total access. This is the Justice Department at this point. Yeah. You know, like this is the Justice Department. It's not exactly they're asking, would you be open to the idea? Well, that's the thing. They're like offered it. Yeah. You don't offer the Justice, uh, Justice Department is going to figure it out if they want to, which has been a real that's a, that's a question, yeah. It's been a real question. Investigators spent about 13 hours at the president's personal residence on Friday. White House officials and Biden lawyers said Joseph D. Fitzpatrick, assistant U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Illinois, said FBI agents conducted the search of Biden's personal property. The FBI on Friday executed a planned consensual search that's consensual that's good to know uh of the president's uh residence in wilmington delaware but here's the thing is like also when they say it's a consensual search which means like they said to the lawyers hey what's a good time you know and the bidens decide when they want them to roll up so like imagine the time leading up to it where they're like okay like we got a vacuum vacuum hunter's room first of all make sure there's no baggies in any of the drawers the fbi is rolling up I mean, they're giving them time to prep, and still, they find crates full of classified. Well, what documents. concerns me, and look, I don't know if they're like doing cleanup before clean. Who knows? I'm not going to get into conspiracy stuff yet. But what concerns me is that you've got somebody who's a U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Illinois speaking on behalf of the Justice Department, right? Using carefully worded right statements like consensual. Yeah. 
Like, that's not, in my experience, generally the way they roll. No, he's yeah. doing PR for Biden. Well, it, what it seems like to me, and maybe this is where you're going with it, is like it, what they want to do is to contrast this search that was done for Biden yes. on his properties with what happened at Mar-a-Lago. Yes. Right? And make it look like, well, obviously Trump's worse. This was consensual. You don't understand Right. It's not reckless for me to have all these documents for six years because, you know, when when my private lawyers found them and sifted through all of them, <laughs> you know, I, I complied with the Justice Department and the FBI and let them actually search. It's like, wow, go, you know what? Good on you. <laughs> which, which, <laughs> Way by, to go. <laughs> which, by the way, judging from what has been characterized in the NBC article, could be around not for four or five years, as we thought with all the VP documents. <clears throat> Not for like, you know, mm-hmm. six or seven years is in the middle of the Obama administration, but dating back to like 07, 08. These are like 15 we're talking years things. this guy's had stolen documents. Right. And and I, I that's the thing that just is so hard to believe. I mean, look, I've not had a ton of experience with this, but in the Senate where we had, you know, I worked for a guy who was in the big four, had these briefings, had classified documents. There was a meticulous... Uh, just process put in place where there was one and only one person in the office who ever possessed documents. They were never read outside of a skiff. Mm-hmm. They were possessed entirely like in a chain of custody that was never something you needed to investigate. Like you didn't just go throw that in the boss's briefcase and have him trot home with it. Yeah, be like, here's some light reading. Right? Because, I mean, (laughs) first of all, these are politicians, right? They've got a million things going on. The the higher up they are, the more important, the more stuff they've got coming at them. You don't expect somebody to just sort of like go through each document they have every day to make sure or whatever. So you just never have a process in place that leaves them with classified documents unnecessarily. These guys apparently didn't do that at all with Biden. Or Biden just fancied himself so important that he would take all these classes, which I think is entirely possible, by the way. That he was like, oh, I got to possess all these, read them and do all this stuff. But either way, they ended up in his home and all over the damn place. Not just fancied himself as so important I can take him home and do whatever. He knew the media would never call him out on it. Literally, these Democrats operate in a completely different, a fantasy world where the press doesn't criticize them unless they're shamed so much by other Democrats that they need to criticize a Democrat. The, the only time, just for folks listening, the only time you will ever hear the mainstream media criticize one Democrat, it's because it benefits another Democrat. <laughs> and you know what? I think in a wild way, the only reason... Fortunately, that this has existed in any fashion as a story in the mainstream press is because Corinne Jean-Pierre pissed off a lot of journalists yeah, I in think that you're room right. when she was like, you guys just get off me. Like, shut up. I'm asking the next person. Like, she's had enough of their bullshit. And they're like, wait a minute. <laughs> like, that's not our game. They're like, I'm a journo. I was told I'm the most important person alive. You need to be nice to me. <laughs> and so they're like, all right, if that's how it's going to be, it's incredible. I, get, I, I, I would not be surprised if like it became a personal thing where they're like, no one talks to me like this. I'm a journo. Well, the best part about it is the Biden people. You can feel. I don't know what this is. We talked a little bit about the conspiracy before, about you know, sort of other Democrats are the ones that are behind this to try to push Biden out. The other piece of this is you know the obvious parallel to the Trump situation, mm-hmm. which I think most people coming into the 
you know, before the Biden docs story was revealed, thought that was a pretty big liability, right? But now because of this, like both liabilities are out in the open. You talk about them publicly all the time. And, mm-hmm. and I think this is the thing is what has become incre- incredibly apparent about Trump's situation is, number one, this was a president who could declassify documents. Number two, it seems like it was one manila folder, right? That was stored in a safe. All right. Like who who's breaking into a safe in the president's residence, right? Okay. I think that's a lot tougher than like, oh, we kept it in the garage with the vet. But I think it's, it almost seems to me like they're going out of their way with comments like consensual yep. and things yep. to try to raise the prospect that there's two systems of justice in this country, Yep. right? That that like we're okay treating this president much differently than we treated the previous president when it comes to this exact same issue, which I got to be honest, it does nothing but elevate Trump in this situation, and, does it not? And, and that's the thing is I keep saying is like, you know, the, the whole line of like, imagine if a Republican did this. It's not about hypocrisy. It's about hierarchy. These people, the James Clappers of the world, the Joe Bidens of the world, they're like, why should I have to follow the rules? I'm too good. You know, Dems feel like they they belong in this permanent overclass that decides, you know, when they say things to, to the coal miners in West Virginia, like learn to code, it's the absolute disdain that they have for people who are not a member of their ruling class club. So the FBI is in, like, uh, we see how tinged the FBI has become with, with politics and how much Democrats have their claws in that building. So when you have the FBI who's trying to run cover for this guy and being like, oh, well, listen, he's not as bad as Trump, you know? It's, it's not hypocrisy, it's hierarchy. They're trying to put it in everyone's nose that like, it doesn't matter how many crates we find in how many places from how long ago that this guy's been sitting on it, it's okay for us to do it. And we want to put that in your face. Yeah, I mean, look, it's 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 very hard to argue with. We'll see how this story unfolds, but right now, if I'm in the Biden White House, I'm not feeling great about the trajectory that I've set ourselves on, right? I mean, it's pretty tough, tough pretty tough stuff. Um, another story that caught my eye, and I know you guys saw this over the weekend, the House Democratic Whip. And part of the reason why I'm fascinated by this is the House Democratic Whip. They just had a whole turnover in House Democratic leadership. The Pelosi... Clyburn, Steny Hoyer regime after a million years has finally left the building. Uh, somewhat, they're still kind of there, but there, but there's a new leadership team in place. They're getting rid of the ninety-year-olds and bringing in the eighty-year-olds. And like the first time I saw this woman's name was in an article that Michael Duncan was quoted in. Really? And, yeah. No. No. It, House Democratic Whip Catherine Clark. Now, I don't know Catherine Clark. I'm sure in Democratic circles she's worked her way up. But, like, in terms of my exposure to the, I don't know. No idea. Man of the moon, right? I have no, absolutely no clue. But, like, uh, in December, there was a story about how Catherine Clark took to CNN and basically said, well, this is the New York Post headline. Incoming Democratic whip Catherine Clark recalls child, quote, waking up with nightmares, unquote, over climate change. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that story came to our attention. I think we even covered on the program because of your comment on Twitter in real time. Well, yeah. If I, I said if somebody told me that if somebody told me that their child was waking up with nightmares over climate change, I would call Child Protective Services. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like behind your back, I would snitch on you. And then when they showed up at your house and you told me, I'd be like, oh, oh, no. <laughs> right. Oh, that's horrible. 
well, I hope they find a loving family. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right. So we were kind of in, like, we got a little more of a flavor got for a the flavor. situation got over a, the weekend. Yeah, yeah. Because CNN reports the House Democratic Whip's daughter was arrested at a protest and charged with assaulting a police officer. According to CNN, uh, it was in Boston and has been arraigned on charges of uh, including assault on a police officer. Uh, the child involved, Riley Dowell, which is not a child, uh, Riley is 23, was found by police tagging the Parkman Bandstand Monument with No Cop City. Mm. Apparently that's like their... Is that like some Antifa language? What is that? Oh, it's definitely... It's they don't They don't shit. want police, so they can just burn buildings indiscriminately. Yeah, well, I wonder where I wonder where this ideology them. came from. This is strange, right? It's probably I was told the sum, that no Democrats believed in that. No, it was the summer of love, you know? I was, 2020 is mostly peaceful. Oh, that's right. Riots. You know, yeah. I was reliably told, though, that Democrats don't believe in that stuff. Oh, yeah. When it's election season, they're like, we don't believe in it, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> the, chi- the child of the House Democratic whip seems to believe in it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so uh, she, uh, the the tagging was also ACAB. It's commonly known as an acronym for anti police slogan. Quote: All cops are bastards. Mm. Unquote. Democrats said they liked police. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and it was Republicans who actually wanted to defund them. Remember, it was like I there was some remember. budget proposal, and they tried to just gaslight all of us into That's being right. like, actually, you know what? We back the blue. There <laughs> There was also confusion because in like the official bio, uh, the, the kid was Jared Dowell, so her son, and then now we're talking about Riley Dowell, her daughter. We've cut to the bottom. It's the same person. So that's the thing. Is like I was super confused over what was going on because the story seemed too good to be true. So people are like, okay, the whips kid, Jared, and they had the photo of Jared, this like angry dude who got arrested. And they're like, okay, Jared was out there assaulting cops and spray painting Antifa garbage all over the place. And I was like, okay, now this story is, you know, and she put out a statement like, oh, my daughter was arrested, right? And I was Which like, is very, very confusing. I thought I got like two stories mixed up. That's the thing is I was like, okay, guys, I, you know, I already tweeted about this. I, I don't care if I'm right or wrong, but like, I don't know what happened here. <laughs> like I said, I it you. was a kid. No like, ombudsman on the Twitter account. <laughs> yeah. But like, I was like, the, you know, I was told it's Jared and the photo of the rest, they're like, okay, this is the whips kid. This kid, you know, this guy looks mad out of control. You know, he's got the like piercings, you know, he's a bad kid, bad he, kid. He looked, he looked, yeah. he looked pretty mad. Yeah. And then they're like, she says my daughter. And I was like, oh, we messed this one up. Okay. Like apparently her, her daughter also got arrested or I don't know what, but then, you know, we got to the bottom of this. It's the same person. Yeah. Something has changed since the bio went out. Uh, now daughter Riley Dowell responsible for this i mean look i am not of the view that every public figure is entirely responsible for the acts of their kid right i just find it super interesting that every time we get a democratic uh kid that's in trouble it's always some antifa thing right or always some sort of left-wing psychopath stuff because they completely assure us under all circumstances, these are not things that we talk about in the home. We don't talk in democratic circles about stuff like this. Well, not only that, but they say that Antifa is an idea, that it doesn't really exist. Yeah, it's a, not real. Right. It's not something that Donald Trump made up about <laughs> our cities. But I mean, assaulting an officer is an absolutely insane thing. I mean, can you imagine if a Republican, to your point you made earlier, can you imagine if a Republican's child 
had assaulted an officer who was standing in front of like an abortion clinic. Yeah, we would read about nothing else for the next three my, weeks. My guess is that like you know, if if some officer was assaulted by a Republican, they'd be out here getting medals and giving interviews on TV of being like, "My God, I I held the line, and Republicans are evil." Yeah, that'd be my guess is what would happen. The the analog to this is is a, like a month of discussion about whether said child is a part of a white supremacist group, oh, yeah. whether this is extremism oh, yeah. has perforated mm-hmm. uh, the, the Republican Party to the right. point where even their children right. are acting right. as... We would have, we'd have a national conversation about you know how these p- people become radicalized, what their media consumption looks like, how responsible is Tucker Carlson? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, that's exactly that's where it is, you know? right? Right. Like, reliably told yes. that this person has watched a lot of Tucker Carlson. <laughs> and, and, and then, like, you, you, I mean, a lot of things start adding up when, when this person says last year that my child, a 23-year-old, is waking up in the middle of the night crying about climate change, <laughs> and now they're assaulting officers. I mean, there's issues going on there, but the thing is that, like, that's what they want on everyone's house. That's the policy that they want everyone to have to deal with. They want all your kids radicalized, out there fighting cops, setting fires to cities. <laughs> that's a hot take. That's, I mean, look, they legalized crime in any any city that Dems get a super majority. They get that dark, you know, left-wing dark one... Uh, Left-wing dark money from George Soros, they get rid of all the DAs, they bring in all the criminals, and they're like, you know, job done. You know, mission accomplished. This is this is a legislator at the federal level who's trying to enact Number policies Number two in the affect, House on the Democratic side. That affect all of us. And what's happening in their house? Yeah. The, the person learning from them has decided that they're going to cry, literally cry, about <laughs> climate change and go out and hit cops. <laughs> I mean, it's a clean cut case. You just can't. The fact that nobody talks, it's not extrapolated out at all, is the killer for mm-hmm. me, right? Because we really would have a conversation for a month about Republican extremism if this was the case. But anyway, the, the riots went on. They weren't just in Boston, apparently. Um, Atlanta. I don't know how many people have seen this because it wasn't as widely covered as it really should be. Uh, six arrested after violent protesters caused mayhem and set an Atlanta uh, police department car on fire in downtown Atlanta over the weekend. It's a routine weekend evening. <laughs> so nice. Uh, this is according to WSB-TV, a local affiliate down there. A peaceful protest in downtown Atlanta turned violent Saturday. <laughs> when protesters set a police car on fire and started smashing windows. Six protesters were arrested. Atlanta Police Chief Darren uh, Sheerbaum announced in a news conference on Saturday night. Those people have not been identified and their charges uh, have not been released. Now, they've since released that and and actually posted the mugshots. Have you guys seen these? I can guess 100%. Yeah, none of them are from... Atlanta. Not a one of them. Not a one of them. Not a one and of yet, them. And yet, the media dutifully shoehorns the word peaceful into the front end of the story. <laughs> yeah, they always try <laughs> to do that. There's nothing peaceful looking about these people. You listen to why they were there. Hundreds of protesters opposed the, uh, to the construction of a police department training center. <laughs> what? Cops <laughs> cannot be trained. you got to be kidding me. Gathered <laughs> at an underground Atlanta uh, before moving down Peachtree Street in the heart of Atlanta. Uh, when they got to the intersection of Ellis Street, some protesters began breaking windows and attacking APD patrol cars. One of the APD cruisers was set on fire. Within two blocks, Atlanta police officers on the scene had stopped the violence from spreading further into downtown. 
However, Chief Shearbaum said the group intended to continue causing damage. Three businesses, including the Wells Fargo okay. Bank, were damaged, Shearbaum said. This is, so this is what's really crazy, is, is the New York Post has more on the same story. Uh, it says the, the Atlanta police chief told reporters multiple protesters were found with explosive devices. What? On them. And one of those devices was what was used to set the police car on fire. So like Molotov cocktails. Like so they like were that. clearly there. It wasn't yeah. like a peaceful protest. It, it, yes. This is not a peaceful protest that turned that took a shocking <laughs> and surprising turn. It's because people showed up with explosives. Yeah. Because they were building They were building a training center that offended yeah. them so much they drove to Atlanta from whatever city. Wait, did they from. cross straight state lines? Yeah. yeah all they of cross them. state lines. Great point. Man, my dude, god. Dude, we're hitting like left wing bingo here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> It is so good. It's so true. Every one of these is crazy. So, uh, you know, Kemp obviously condemned the thing. Uh, crimes will not be tolerated, and George will be prosecuted fully. Uh, the mayhem comes after Manuel Esteban Paez Tehran was shot and killed by Georgia State Patrol troopers who were trying to clear protesters camping near the site of the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center. Dubbed Cop City. Ah, so that's why that's where the spray paint came from. Mm. Right. So, dude, I mean, as much as these guys want to tell you that this is not happening, it's definitely happening. They're mobilizing now in two cities on the same weekend with this Cop City rhetoric and in protest of a training center in Atlanta. I mean, come on. And the media is not the slightest bit interested in getting to the bottom of the root cause of all of this they just they don't care they, they pretend like it doesn't exist and i think we all know the reason why but the reality is it it does a very very big disservice to our society that they won't even ask the question they won't even mm-hmm. like say who's funding this who are these people why are they why are they showing up with explosive devices over a police training center all they want to do is attack cops well because you have you know merrick garland attacking parents you know who speak up at pta meetings yeah. those are the real terrorists those of are our domestic society. Terrorists. maybe it's time for a national conversation about left-wing extremism yeah <laughs> right like, perhaps you know, I yeah i think that's a good idea like a, a national network of people who can just parachute into cities and uh set cop cars on fire that might actually be a problem let me just say like if, if you're watching your downtown become a protest center because of a police training center, like, you got trouble. Because, A, it's a police training center, right? I mean, your whole problem with it is just law enforcement, period. <laughs> it's not like it's a prison. It's not right. like it's, you know, like, this is a training center. We don't want them to be trained. <laughs> that means they might do their job. Might, they, might might, be, they might be able to stop us from committing more crimes. <laughs> we can't let them train. <laughs> Which is amazing, right? Because, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip one just because I think this is linked. So the D.C. mayor, for those of you who have not followed this story, it's absolutely incredible. The D.C. mayor, who is a left-wing psychopath by any stretch of the imagination, is very concerned. And the D.C. mayor says to Biden, uh, her blame, because a crime has just gone through the roof in D.C. After many, many decades of, of decreasing crime and you know, making the city more inhabitable and everything else, everything post-protests in 2020... It's become a real problem. Her her problem with it is that the teleworking. 
It's the teleworking. So she says, in, uh, according to Politico, your teleworking employees are killing my city. Washington has the highest work from home rate of any major city. With an empty downtown, the city faces a real risk of economic peril. At the swearing in this month for a third term as the District of Columbia's mayor, Muriel Bowser delivered a surprising inaugural address ultimatum of sorts to the federal government. Get your employees back to work in person or else vacate your lifeless downtown buildings so we can fill them with the city with people again. Um, where do I start with this? Okay, in the backdrop of all of this is the fact that the city council in D.C., passed unanimously a bunch of legislation that would basically reduce the crime of carjackings and violent crimes with guns. Oh, excuse me. There was actually one person on the city council. These people are all lunatics, <laughs> the D.C. City Council. Okay. All but one um, opposed, or I'm sorry, supported this re- reduction in, in, in penalties. Because the problem, for of violent course... Crime. Was the the punishment that you right. gave a carjacker, uh, not the not the carjacking? Right. right. They had to talk. They're like, okay, we got to bring down numbers of violent crime and carjackings. What if we don't count them? But let me. <laughs> 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 they're not crimes. So yeah. so so, so like the, the Eddie Murphy meme. <laughs> really, yeah. really so they're all lunatics, right? This is what passes for reasonable. The guy who uh, who opposed reducing these these crimes is the D.C. City Council member who blames the Jews for the weather. Yeah. No. Yes. Yeah, yes. I heard about this. So so on the spectrum of left-wing <laughs> radicals, he's the most reasonable one. <laughs> <laughs> the guy who thinks Jews control the weather. <laughs> I mean, you just can't make it up. You can't. You he's, can't. Like, he's like, listen, guys, we can't get too crazy here. I don't, <laughs> I don't think people realize how long gone their cities are. I don't think they do either they because don't. this is the kind of thing if you actually tapped into and looked at is just unbelievable. Yeah. Like I occasionally follow Minneapolis, which is as big a disaster, if not worse than DC. I occasionally follow their stuff. One, it's kind of comical, but two, I'm just like admiring their commitment to the bit of how insane they can honestly be. And there was a, a discussion being promoted by some of their city council people about putting an extra tax on building owners who have tenants that no longer uh, occupy the building. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, the people who left, like their business is closed because of the crime. Right. 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 Uh, the landlord should be penalized and taxed further uh, because the people left their building. <laughs> this is just <laughs> outrageous. And so they're not making money. Because they don't have a tenant. Right. And they should be taxed for that. Right. Because you got to find a tenant. That's so cool. But that's that's, that's the fundamentally same argument that she's making here. Right. Yeah. That your your teleworking employees are killing my city. Well, you know, your teleworking employees aren't wild about coming back to a carjacking every afternoon. You know? I mean... And that's the thing that's just so I struggle to understand is when you watch Northern California and what's become of it. And then the rest of these cities sort of following along suit. And then Democrats who control all of this pretending like it doesn't exist. I mean, come on. I mean, that's at what point and how do they continue to be reelected? Like, I mean, to be honest with you. I mean, that's the thing is when you when you were talking about Bowser and and, and this is 
after she's been sworn for the third time and is like, hey, everything is terrible. I wonder who's been mayor the past two times. Right. <laughs> at what point is it like, well, maybe you're just awful at your job, you know? Do you need to, like, you're going to keep electing the people who've done a completely terrible job. It's, it, I mean, but that's pretty much the Democrat way. But know? I don't know who to ha- actually hate more in this situation. Muriel Bowser, obviously, terrible person, terrible administration, terrible mayor. Uh, government workers not showing up into the office. I'm actually kind of for that, too. <laughs> you know, because what? You, oh, you want one of these people at, at the... Uh, at the Department of Agriculture to be shutting down more American family farms yeah. with regulations. Well, you want them to show up to their office every day so they can sharpen their pencils to fuck over the American farmer? <laughs> no, I don't. I want them home and I want them ordering DoorDash and I want them watching bullshit television and not doing their job. That's what I want. That's what a, a sad commentary, though, because they get paid either way. Yeah. You know? Well, that's the price of admission. Oh, man. Jeez. Welcome to America. Welcome to American government. <laughs> your, your cities suck, <laughs> and your government workers don't show up. <laughs> I think the secret is just become as radical as you possibly can. Yeah. And they'll be like, listen, we're going to pay you to stay home. Uh, this struck a chord. Uh, it's, <laughs> CNN has a story about a, something we've been following here in the Variety program about a pig. Mm-hmm. And this pig is turned on a butcher mm. and killed a butcher in Hong Kong. Uh, what was interesting is the framework for this story. The New York Post has the headline, Pig Kills Butcher in Hong Kong Slaughterhouse. Facts only. Got Start it. Reporting. Okay, that, make, that makes sense. CNN, struggling pig kills butcher at slaughterhouse in hong kong <laughs> they really took the, the side of the animal the pigs have a pr office <laughs> according to cnn a 61 year old butcher who worked at the Shangshui slaughterhouse in the city's northern outskirts uh close to its border with mainland china was knocked to the ground by a struggling pig and sustained a wound mm. from this 40 centimeter 15 inch meat cleaver mm. uh, that he was holding police told cnn uh, the butcher had been about to kill the pig uh, which he had already shot with an electric stun gun when it regained consciousness and knocked him over a colleague found the man unconscious with a cleaver in his hand and a wound on his left foot uh, he was taken to the hospital and later certified as dead mm. the police force said the cause of death is yet to be determined <laughs> i mean i think this covid it, it, it's a <laughs> <laughs> It is a COVID death. It's a COVID death. <laughs> no question about it. I mean, the lesson we learned is like he had already done it. You got to kill an animal, you know, because yeah. uh, you, you know, can't the, hesitate. The war against nature continues to this day. We've been <laughs> well, fighting it since the dawn of time, and it never ends. Is the I, thing is I, until we have victory, you got to be on your toes. This is evidence we're going soft. I mean, that's so, in his credit. I bet his KD's been insane. Like he's probably <laughs> got a lot of pigs under the belt. And only one got him. <laughs> he's got a lot of pigs under his belt. So he's got that. He he he, he did his share. He pitched in on the battle, right? <laughs> he's so he the warrior we remember. <laughs> <laughs> but this this pig got him. I mean, I think it's an. I mean, maybe I don't know. He's sixty-one. I feel like. What what should we do? How should we apply this to our own lives? Well. I mean, if I were there, number one, what I would do is now you're selling the pig for at least four or five times as much. Oh, it's the same pig. You got this is killer pig now. Yeah. You want killer pig? 
Like this pig has had the taste of flesh. Yeah, this is like what you this is like Wagyu now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You could sell it for four or five X what you could before. That bacon's gonna be amazing. <laughs> but also, I you think, know, uh, one thing we gotta worry about here, fellas, I feel like we're kinda whistling past the graveyard. I mean, we're talking about a, an animal being butchered in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. I, the animal has a superhuman strength and an ability to kill us. I don't know. I'm just worried this is another pandemic. Uh-oh. It could be a swine a swine flu type. We got a new swine flu. Situation. And it makes them impervious to electrical stun guns. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and if that's can, the case, we got big problems. And then they can wield a cleaver at the same time. <laughs> it can wield a, a cleaver and, and on the foot. I mean, this is this is why Texas has it right. They put chain guns on, on helicopters, and they just go after the hogs yeah, that way. You can take them from a distance. You know, we still have air superiority against the hogs. <laughs> Well, the worst the worst thing that could happen from this story is that the animals see it as an opportunity to start rising up against us, and we have to send a to message down. today. Yep. The first animal you see, kill it. You have to kill. If you have a goldfish at home, take it out of the bowl, throw it on the floor. It's the only thing you can do. Mother Nature must understand the stakes. It's the fish for you. You got to draw a hard line, and it takes all of us. Like have an animal at every meal. You got to do your part. Right. Every meal, you got to have an animal. That's right. And That's if, right. And if you have a pet, bring the pet in. Let him watch. <laughs> <laughs> Let the boy watch. Yeah. Show him. Show him there's consequences. Uh, We're in charge. Fellas, did you know? So way back when in the variety program, we talked about a very serious uh, strain of a disease that was plaguing America. And it's since I'd sort of gone away. Of course, we're talking about super gonorrhea. My God. Have you seen it? So way back on episode 21, wow. which, which, by the way, if you go back and listen to any of those, that was some hot content. <laughs> That's 238 episodes ago. Wait, yeah, 238 episodes ago. I mean, wow. that was some hot content. There, I feel like our, uh, you know, you, you and your family concerns, Smug, we've, we've softened. <laughs> we've mo- Yeah. We've softened a bit, which I, you know, now I'm, I want to get right back into it. <laughs> so the Daily Mail reports the U.S. is investigating first two cases of super strength gonorrhea, uh, a strain that is resistant to every antibiotic. As experts warn, it poses a serious public health concern. Now, I think we talked about, I didn't listen to this particular part of the discussion, but correct me if I'm wrong, fellas. I think we talked about this before. Isn't gonorrhea the clap? Uh, no, that's chlamydia, right? No, I thought gonorrhea was the clap. I can't remember, man. I, I, don't know. I, think, Mike, I think Michael's right. You think chlamydia is the clap? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, gonorrhea is the the one that like, it, it, like burns when you pee or something like that. Let's look at it. They up. all sound terrible. Yeah. I don't know. I hit Listen, Google, no, look, 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 look no at No one wants to see the Google on that. Yeah, Smug is no, 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 writhing no. right now. He's, yeah. He doesn't want to hear yeah. it. But we're going to get to the bottom of this because our listeners deserve it. No, no, the clap, the clap is gonorrhea. See, there right. it is. Okay, wow. you're right. Okay. There it is. Right. So this is like something that is somewhat prominent sexually transmitted disease in this country. It's, it's the super. It's the standing ovation. It's the super clap. <laughs> <laughs> so this one, standing ovation. <laughs> but what? Like, here's my. <laughs> I don't even know why that's so funny it is. Um, so, but if you're like navigating the world of STDs, which, you know, I, I, let's hope for all of us. That Horrible place not, to be navigating. Yeah, you know. 
But it comes with, we have many college-age listeners, and they, yeah. this is important information for them to understand. Like, generally speaking, the coup de gras, the thing you got to worry about the most is the herpes, Oof. right? Because the herpes, it doesn't go away. <laughs> like, it's, it's once you have it, you're there. You're on the... And apparently, that's the same thing here now. Well, so, but that's my, that's my point, is that now you have gonorrhea that's going to be in the same thing. Here's my concern. Um... If it burns all the time and you can't get rid of it, is that just a hot oof? Boy, that sounds like the worst STD in the history of the planet. I mean, you, the, the CDC is going to issue guidance. They're going to be like, okay, super gonorrhea is out there. Everybody, <laughs> mask up. Mask up your kids. <laughs> super G. <laughs> Don't let them go to school. Got to throw a mask on. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> it's they found one in Massachusetts. Of course. Uh, you don't see that there's any connection like the between the cases that they found. And it's a bacteria. Oh, yeah. The description is horrible. We. Sh- oh, it, it sounds. <laughs> Why don't you go horrible. ahead and read it for me? Absolutely not. It's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing. Yeah. No. So this is just so you don't have to take my word for it. The Daily Mail has has uh, helpfully done this. It uh, is a, a sexually transmitted disease with about seven hundred thousand new cases detected every year. Mm. The disease can cause painful burning sensation when urinating uh, or an unpleasant, uh, you know, discharge and all that. (laughs) I told you, it's horrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but if left untreated, the infection can lead to serious complications, including infertility and potentially life-threatening pelvic inflammatory disease in women. Uh, So so here's the thing, like, if you can't treat it, uh, this might be a bigger deal than we're giving it worth, right? I mean, if, if you got it, it can't be treated. Just take as many pigs with you as you can. You gotta go out on <laughs> you top. Just gotta go. <laughs> and by God, don't drink any water <laughs> while you're at it. Oh man. Anyway, that's something to keep an eye on. So, Super G, back in the conversation. Um, I know you like talking about this nerd shit, so I guess we'll do it for a minute. Absolutely. Uh, AI. Yeah, so uh, on our previous show, we brought up, and you know, our listeners are now familiar with ChatGPT, Chat GPT, this like super AI, which is uh, students have been able to use it to write their essays. It's passed, you know, the medical exams to become a doctor. Um, I, I saw this weekend it passed, uh, uh, I believe it was Wharton College's MBA, like final yeah. exam. Um, so, so now, you know, following this reporting, it says Davos frets over AI and white collar jobs. Boy, oh. they, they really are looking out for. I mean, this for was the rest your prediction, us, right? yeah. So, so what has happened is you didn't hear about, you know, fretting over what's going to happen when American manufacturing is sent overseas, when coal miners are losing their jobs. That was all. Oh, just learn to code. But now, oh, we, we're facing a crisis because it's white collar jobs. It's folks who get to take their little private jets to Davos and feel important. <laughs> Uh, now they're worried because they're like, wait, what if people figure out they don't actually need us? We can be replaced with some software. Which looks like it's, in, I mean, sort of inevitable in some level, right? Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It says uh, the technology has found its way into areas he never expected. It can, uh, for, so this is, you know, a very positive way it can be used. It says helping overworked nurses in the UK monitor patients' oxygen levels, uh, freeing up two hours of work. Per nurse and like, but see I, that I feels that feels it, like it yeah. would be a good thing. I can't say nice enough things about nurses. They're like the actual people who help you. Totally. Like, if you're in dire straits, and we've had a nurse shortage forever. Yeah. If you're in dire straits, the doctor rolls up for about 45 seconds, instantly bounces to go golf. It's the nurse who's on the front lines who's like, okay, what's wrong? You know, I'll get you a bucket. You can puke in it. They deal with the bad stuff. 
Yeah, but if you're laying in the bed sick, you wanna you wanna type something into a chat GPT or are you hope? No, the to hospital's talk to, using it. The hospital's using it. I'm well, not typing you, anything. You wanna talk to somebody. You want a person to help you. I'm just like bring bring more of that stuff. I'm trying to go back to sleep. <laughs> so if anybody starts wheeling uh, uh, computers into your job, keep an eye on yeah, that. Yeah, situation. keep an eye on that. Well, I, I, so this is late breaking news in the chat GPT. Uh oh. You know, theme here we got going here in this segment. Uh, a minion um, tweeted at us that said he told Chat GPT to write a story about Cocaine Mitch, Cocaine Mitch McConnell, yeah, and Cocaine Bear. The, and, the film that's going to be out, I don't know when, sometime this year. Yeah. And so he wrote a, a the chat, the AI Are wrote a story about Cocaine Mitch and Cocaine Bear. Would you like to hear it? Yeah. No, sure. I got to hear this. Once upon a time in the forest, there was a bear named Cocaine Bear. <laughs> he was a curious and adventurous bear who loved to explore the forest and discover new things. One day while he was out on one of his adventures, he stumbled upon a strange creature. It was a creature unlike any he had seen before. It was tall and thin with a long tail and white furry coat. The creature introduced itself as Cocaine Mitch. <laughs> Cocaine Bear was intrigued by the strange creature and asked him what he was doing there in the forest. Cocaine Mitch explained that he was a senator. Are you, the, and that he had, been on a hike, he had been on a hike to clear his mind about important political issues. Cocaine Bear was impressed and asked Cocaine Mitch what kind of issues he was thinking about. Cocaine Mitch replied that he was thinking about ways to help the economy grow and create jobs. Cocaine Bear was fascinated. <laughs> he asked Cocaine Mitch if there's anything he could do to help. Cocaine Mitch thought for a moment and then had an idea. You know, Cocaine Bear, I think you would make a great ambassador for the forest. I can take you to Washington with me and introduce you to all the important people together. We could make a difference and help our country. <laughs> That's seriously it. Yeah. That is stunning. A computer wrote that. That is an amazing thing. Yeah. That's stunning. That's an amazing Incredible. thing. Wow. Well, I mean, I, well, think about it if you're a student. Like, you know, now you don't have to actually learn any facts because everyone's got a phone in their pocket and they can Google it. Yep. And now you don't even have to write your own papers. No, I mean, because that's care that's, of it. I mean, I'm telling you that sounded like a person wrote it. It did. Wow. With some creativity, too. Unbelievable. You know? Which brings me, actually, uh, this isn't in the topics we're supposed to discuss, but did you see the turtle? Uh, it reminded me. Oh, the, the cocaine turtle. The cocaine turtle. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, so it's like a sea turtle. The Coast Guard posted this video. It had, what, like 50 pounds of cocaine strapped to it 50 or something? Mil, $50 million worth. 50 mil? Yeah, $53 yeah. million worth of cocaine in flotillas behind the sea turtle that apparently like the cartels or somebody just sort of released it into the sea knowing that it, it normally follows a certain route to get back to where it's wow. going it's like the cartels are now the aquaman of cocaine yeah like they'll just communicate with the animals to get them to do their bidding hunter biden is searching where to find turtles <laughs> <laughs> seriously uh, all right, fellas. Are we going to play a game? Are we going to play? We do. We, we have to play a game. Because the, because here's the thing. We, we were talked all weekend the news that Ron Klain is stepping down uh, as chief of staff to the White House came as a particular bro blow to the Variety program for all the obvious reasons for, for he's listeners. He's just been so good for content. So good for content. So, Michael, what are we going to do with this? We're going to play our last last round of claim to fame wow i love it don't you know who i am remember my name claim brain worm takes forever 
engagement forever. Broken brain takes with no shame. Queen! Hot takes up to 11. Saving Joe Biden from blame. Queen! It's gonna live forever. Ronnie, remember my name. Remember, remember, remember. Wonderful. <laughs> it is such a good song. I'm going to miss that song. The song has to live in infamy. I think we need to put that thing out just separately so everybody's got it for posterity. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. Uh, so for our new listeners, uh, if you came in from Megyn Kelly saying last week, you don't know what this game is. Claim to Fame is where I read four tweets, three of which have been retweeted by Ron Klain, one which has not. Uh, we're all insane, uh, which means this game <laughs> this game is really hard to play. And Holmes and and Smug have to decide which is the one that he didn't retweet. So you know what? You know what? This is the last claim to fame. We should let Ashbrook play a game. Oh, you want to play? You want to play? You know, the last time I played a game, I won. I beat Smug. I think it was this. how many retweets. And this is so. the things I get. You, you know what? Yeah, right. You can't include a Bengals fan because they immediately That's just the thing. spike the football. You let the, the tech staff in for a second. You try to be nice. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get you get the social media intern. The social media intern inviting people to think. This is amazing. Okay. It's totally off the rails. Okay, here. it's off the rails. Uh, okay, so tweet number one. This is from Greg Sargent. Uh, you may know him as uh, the plumb line. Oh, God. This is the guy who was hired as the liberal when Jennifer Rubin was hired as the conservative at the Washington Post. That's right. You can only imagine. Um, This is uh, an immigration thing. This deserves more attention. Biden just expanded a program protecting undocumented workers from deportation. If they blow the whistle on exploitative employers... This aligns the interests of migrants and American workers, blowing up a big MAGA argument. (laughs) Okay. Man, I'm getting all the hits in here because, you know, he's just, he's just, this one's Jennifer Rubin. Oh, yes. Oh, boy. Yes. Biden has been thrown into the briar patch, confronted with a radical GOP house. What's a Democratic president to do? Tout his achievements. Stress bipartisanship. Rail against cruel forced birth mandates. Confirm as many judges as possible, etc. <laughs> Did he retweet it? Is he so shameful that he would retweet that? You also have to think about the intentions of the judge and jury. Yeah. Because he's sometimes he's he's a head fake. Tricky. Okay. Tweet number three. <clears throat> this is a, wow, another Greg Sargent. Um, so the original tweet is Greg Sargent. It's lunacy that Ron DeSantis can hijack the national debate with dumb stunts like his Martha's Vineyard BS. This year, Dems have to grab control of our big debates. I talked to Dems who are winning in the border region about how to counter MAGA agitprop. Oh that's, from Gre- that's from Greg Sargent. Uh, there's a quote tweet of that. Uh, this is from Dave Beyer um, from the Cato Institute. President Biden's finally acting to fix the border and Republicans are upset because they want it broken. 
Cato oh. Institute. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, that's what happened. So, yeah, so, so they're for open borders. So we're taking these those two separately, or we're no, it's no, it's, that's so one. it's the Cato Institute that he retweeted or, or didn't, didn't or didn't. Okay, we'll see. Okay, that's separate. Okay, well that that changes my calculus. Okay, <clears throat> and then look, we've been playing this game for a long time. <laughs> Uh, and one of, I think, the unique things about Ronald Klain that I love most about him is that he can achieve the highest mountaintop of politics, become chief of staff, and still periodically retweet himself. <laughs> oh, man. So I've included one of his own tweets in here, and you have to decide if maybe he retweeted himself. Okay, but because what, it's the last time we're going to play this game. What a head fake! This okay, is, this is like all the hits, man. It, it yeah, is. Like, all everything. You got Jen Rubin. You got Plumline. You got him. Maybe retweeting his own thing. I tried to really cultivate a real artisanal. Oh, this is a good claim, game. Claim to fame. I'm going to miss this game. Okay, so fourth here is of course uh, Ron Klain himself. Past two weeks, these all have green <laughs> check mark emojis. This is a list. Unemployment lowest in 50 years. Inflation down six months in a row. Today's new jobless claims a historic low. Record number of Americans with health insurance. Can I get a... Can I ask the judge and jury if I can get a date on the last one? January 19th. Okay. Why? Well, I just... I'm What I'm trying to do there... and. Uh, I can. Why don't I explain it after? Oh, okay. After when okay. we get into, people are going to do their selections. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, we can get into it. Can, okay. can so. we do a reread of the first one? This is uh, Greg Sargent. This deserves more attention. Biden just expanded a program protecting undocumented workers from deportation if they blow the whistle on exploitative employers. This aligns the interests of migrants and the American workers, blowing up a big MAGA argument. I, I, I actually don't understand how it does that. It doesn't. I don't like I mean, this. It fundamentally is diametrically opposed. I don't understand how it does what he says no, it does. It's insane. <laughs> it's a wild. Okay. All right. Let me uh, let me turn around while Smug does his thing, and then you tell me how we want to handle Ashbrook. Okay. Smug has his answer. Ashbrook is he? Are we allowing him to play, or is he punished for? Are you kidding me? Speaking up. <laughs> are you are you kidding? So me? I'm going to turn off your mic. I'm literally, I'm literally about to turn off the mic of this Colts fan whose team was out of it in September. Are you still an NFL fan? Are you allowed to root for your, for your team? You don't embarrass your city too much. See, see, see now, now, now he's finally let the mask slip, and now you know, Holmes, why I'm not cheering for his team. <laughs> Okay, you want to submit your answer? Okay. Ashbrook has all already uh, submitted an answer as, as a smug. Uh, for uh, for our listeners, now the open the floor section here where Holmes can discuss his answer. Okay, so one of the reasons why I was curious about the dates of all of, of the, the number four yeah. was because there was some economic news that came out last Friday, but it also overlapped all of the document stuff, mm. right? Which got basically no 
promotion. Yeah. Like the economic news was basically non-existent because everybody was talking about the Biden docs. So you're saying he was on tilt and he really wanted to get that news out there. It seems to me like a chief of staff yeah. who's upset. He's like, flood the zone. Yeah, he's upset <laughs> about the lack of appreciation of his own accomplishments. Yeah. Here. Right, right. Would take the added step. Of, of the self-RT. Of, of, of retweeting himself. So I... I think he did right tweet that. Okay. I think he did. <laughs> um, <laughs> harder for me to get to the other side of this, though. I mean, I like it, he, the sergeant stuff. The first one, it. I don't understand the argument. It's very, very difficult for me to get to to like. I mean, it doesn't. It's not mutually exclusive for him to retweet something that's insane right See, that's why i think he retweeted it is because like, was that your guess one the the beating heart of progressive politics is two completely opposing ideas that they tell your brain to accept you know like yes if you get rid of laws we'll have less crime wait a minute okay so 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 this the other, is the same thing like yes if we if we protect migrants then American workers' jobs are protected. The, the Wait, other, what? Huh? The other thing about one is that he definitively says blowing up a big MAGA argument, and a guy like Ron Klain sees that and thinks, oh, this validates my point. Yeah, maybe. I've been making this argument. <laughs> I've been making this argument, this crazy, yeah. fucked up argument, and people haven't listened right up until now. Greg is He's like, sergeant, I, though. I say dumb shit, no one pays attention. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with this guy. He's saying the same <laughs> dumb shit. <laughs> so I, look... I also think that number three, so one of the things that's come to our awareness is that a listener uh, who happens to work at a conservative uh, think tank, who is an attorney where they do a lot of work on good government issues, Hmm. uh, was listening to a program that we did on Claim to Fame months ago where we highlighted a clear retweet of a Hatch Act violation. Yeah. Right, yeah. Oh, yeah. something that was super obvious. This we, is an important story. This is an important. Story. Which is which is why we didn't like. I think I lost the game because I was like, if he did that, it is a Hatch Act violation, and like that, I can't imagine a chief of staff would actually willingly do that. We well, did retweet it, God. and this attorney who was listening then filed <laughs> a complaint. At which point, the, I forget if it's GAO or who who does the oversight yes. of that. Yeah, but then they sent a letter to to Klain saying like. like you messed up. You violated the Hatch Act. This is your your warning, God. basically, right? Power of the program. The, the powerful podcast. Power of the program. But I, I encourage every conservative lawyer to listen to our show. For and, ideas to and, file lawsuits. Yeah, and just <laughs> file as many lawsuits to screw the Dems up. Yes. So, but, but the reason why that's relevant to this is because I don't think it changes his behavior one bit, but it changes what he retweets. Okay. And I think he's probably searching the 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 internet and twitter in, in particular for desantis stuff all day long yeah right because i just that's his brain that's the way he works he's worried about desantis so i think that's how he gets on this but you can't retweet that his desantis thing is too obvious even if it's not overtly political it mentions desantis the white house chief of staff getting involved in that all of a sudden you're gonna have a whole nother thing as a potential presidential candidate but a retweet of it by a Cato Institute guy mm. talking about how Biden is fixing the borders mm. and Republicans are upset about it. 
Now that's intriguing. You're saying it's a fig leaf he would need to enable to be able to RT. He it. would need it. Yeah. So then, therefore, I think he did retweet number okay. three. Okay. Okay. Um, and also, my thinking, my guess, wild guess, there's no facts to back this up. Wild well, speculation. Yes. I think Klein is leaving to go the campaign side. Yeah. That'd be my guess. Well, could so be. this would be kind of like, you know, along the lines. One other thing, if you're retweeting Sergeant on number one, you're more likely to see Sergeant on number three. Is that, isn't that that how Twitter works? The algorithm? If, if you retweet somebody, then their their tweets, subsequent tweets, are more likely well, to show Well, yeah, if you interact tweet. with an account, you see, yeah. see In theory, like, who knows? Yeah, who knows? Um, so, so this, like, if you take the insanity of number one that I don't understand the logic, and it fits perfectly with Klein... The Ron Klain retweeting of himself uh, during a document issue and the fig leaf that he needs for DeSantis to cover up the uh, in the Cato thing on number three, it leaves Jennifer Rubin as the one he does not retweet. Okay. So you're in, your guess is number two. Yeah. Ashbrook, your guess is number two. Mm-hmm. This is the Jennifer Rubin. And so my thinking is he did retweet number two because Duncan wants to do the reverse of the reverse. But, Go out with a Ruben retweet. But the, the last thing I will say about the Jennifer Rubin retweet, as a chief of staff, again, I'm ascribing logic to this guy who's had none. So I'm very, very <laughs> reticent to do this. I very, even, very reticent. I don't reticent. even look at the content. I'm playing the player. Not, you know, no, you're, I'm so, it's a hand. better play with Klain. It's the reason why you're better at this. But But... To start a new Congress before they're even voting on their first day with this bizarre sort of like partisan rant right. about the insanity of House Republicans, of which he needs to do a lot of work with over the next six months, seems to be like the worst thing a White, a White House chief of staff could do. Well, he did it. Ah, <laughs> son of a Let's go. He did it. No. He retweeted it. Unbelievable! Yeah, uh, he did. Uh, He did uh, on on January January fifteenth. You know, unbelievable! Before they even start, he's like, "These people are maniac." Can you read that one more time? I will read it again. Biden has been thrown into the briar patch, confronted by a radical GOP House. What's a Democratic president to do? Tout his achievements, stress bipartisanship, rail against cruel forced birth mandates, confirm as many judges as possible, etc. Dude, and he, the White House chief of staff retweeted that. He retweeted that. Before he's even spent a day doing business with the rats. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. The balls. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe he had one foot out, out the door. Oh, incredible. Um, so, Smug, your guess was number three. This was the President Biden's finally acting to fix the board and Republicans are upset because they want it broken. Mm-hmm. You believe he didn't retweet that one? Did not. He did as well. Wow. Amazing. Wow. So that leaves us with number one. So himself or this insanity? He retweeted himself. <laughs> oh, he didn't do the first. The number one insanity. The number one plumb line insanity he actually didn't retweet. You, you tricked me because I, I was between one and two, but I figured because so many insane tweets had already been yeah. basically underlying all of claim to fame, we were going to go out on a high note. <sighs> what a game. And his rafter or his jersey goes up in the rafters. It does. It does. One of the best content providers that Ruthless <laughs> Variety Program has ever had. Yeah. I love it. Fellas, we did it. Let's go to the interview. 
We want to welcome to the program a good friend of the program. You've heard him here before, and you see him everywhere. You're about to see him absolutely everywhere because he's going on a book tour. Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, welcome. It's great to be back. Listen, great to be ruthless. I mean, this is this is good stuff. This is good stuff. You got a new book coming out. Never give an inch. Never give an inch. Uh, it's the story of the four years that I spent as CIA director. Uh, the good and the bad, the places we got it done and the thing that uh, we didn't get done still work to do, uh, and tells a bit of the inside story about, not about people, it's not a gossip book like some have written about the Trump administration, I don't have much interest in that. Um, but you're, it tells not, you're not a gossip girl? Uh, <laughs> I never would have guessed that, Secretary. There's some stories, but it's not its focus. The focus yeah. is on the inside story of like how we thought about protecting America. What was, yeah. what was our impetus? Why did we break so much glass? Why did we bust some of the norms, the historic foreign policy establishment rules uh, in ways that we thought delivered? It, it, it articulates the motivation behind that, how we tried to execute it, and some of the chaos that ensues when you are, in fact, in uncharted territory with respect to this this D.C. blob that just doesn't want to hear about a, a different kind of idea. Yeah, well, it's what's so fascinating. I'm not all the way through the book yet, but I can't wait to read it because you do have these vignettes that are just, you know, nobody's heard from before, right? I mean, you open with this scene in North Korea. I mean, it, tell <laughs> us about the, the North Korean experiment. Oh, goodness, where to begin? President Trump said to me one day, I was a CIA director, uh, and said, can we talk to North Koreans? <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir, I, I think we can. He says, good, I, I, I want you to tell them you're going to come see them. <laughs> oh, you're like, <laughs> all right. Roger, sir, sounds but, like, yeah, By Roger. we, you meant me. Yeah, he meant me. <laughs> and I said, oh, great. And he says, and tell them I'm happy to come see them too, but you go first. <laughs> <laughs> and so it began to chart a different path, which became these three summits, first in uh, Singapore, then in Hanoi, and then at the DMZ where we had senior level discussions that uh, that did good. They stopped long range testing and nuclear testing, but didn't ultimately get the nuclear weapons out of Chairman Kim's hands. Uh, and when I when I went there that first trip, you know, it's just it's a different world. 27 million people living in a hermit kingdom, flying into Pyongyang, uh, just uh, just crazy stuff. It was, I gotta imagine the heart rate is up a little bit. Before heart rate you, was up a yeah. little. You know, you, uh, you, you, you practice, you get ready, you read the histories of the previous negotiations, you try to study the person you're gonna be sitting at the table with and who might be around him. But yes, when you, when you land and you're on the ground there, uh, I tell this story in the book, when we land, you know, got my security team, I'm traveling with a fellow named Andy Kim, a career uh, CIA officer, it's just the two of us uh, on the team. And we land, and the security guy comes, uh, goes to the ground, goes, comes back on the plane, and says, "Hey, you know, sir, Mr. Director, they're not going to let us take our weapons uh, into the meetings." And we immediately start laughing because we realize, like, who cares? Right? <laughs> like, you're already our weapons, here. Yeah, we're here. Like, we might last twenty minutes longer. It might make the movie. <laughs> it, it might make the movie better. But, but in the end, in the end, it's of no importance. So we all we all took our weapons off and uh, and headed to this. Uh, this meeting, this historic meeting between the Secretary of State of the United States and this nasty guy who had just uh, a few weeks before that returned to an American home yep. in the condition that he died from being held in activity, Otto Warmbier. Yeah. Uh, so it was serious stuff with a ruthless, ruthless, evil counterpart trying to put America in a place where we'd be a little bit safer. And you kind of have a funny story about you come face to face with him for the first time. Yeah, so early on when we when we first encountered uh, each other I'd prepared like what what are the eight things he might say he went he went off the board for 50 jack right he does and uh a translator said you know uh, mr director I, I wasn't sure you'd actually come here since you have been trying to kill me 
And I remember, I remember, I remember thinking like, Andy, you let me down. <laughs> not, not on the list. Uh, and so I just decided, you know, he's pushing me a little bit. I'll push him back. And I said, oh, you know, Mr. Chairman, uh, maybe I still am. <laughs> and, of course, time delay. You all laughed immediately. It was a time delay because you got to translate. Yeah. And so I'm sweating. Yeah, and, right. Uh, he, he smiles and laughs. Then we went on to the meeting. It's interesting. It kind of set the tone in a way mm-hmm. that we knew we were going we to be able to have a conversation on these incredibly important issues that we knew who each other were. We kind of had figured each other out pretty quickly. Uh, and that there was a way we could at least uh, engage in a serious way on on the most important topic facing America at that time. I kind of imagine that that's a hell of a journey for you, right? I mean, look, you've done some important stuff. Member of Congress, obviously your director of CIA at this point. But like, you know, your guy from Kansas, all of a sudden you're standing next no, to this. this. Is, this is crazy. I mean, this is yeah, wild, this right? Crazy, this is crazy. I, I ran a machine shop in Wichita, Kansas. That's what I, <laughs> that's what I did. Uh, and... Uh, you, you never expect to get this opportunity nor the duty that comes alongside of that. Right. So, yes, it was otherworldly in that sense. And you try to, you know, we we role played a few times, but there's nothing. You walk there, every single North Korean over six foot was lined up on the road oh, yeah. with their weapons. Uh, yeah, it's it's really something. It's something as a responsibility as a Secretary of State and just for Mike, little old Mike from Wichita, yeah. Kansas. It's really something. I mean, that is a journey. Yeah. That's incredible. I wish I could tell you, you know, sir, my whole life prepared me for this and I was ready. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't think that's the case. I think the, the good Lord, um, the, the the work that you've done to prepare and then the willingness to recognize there's there's a lot going on there. Yeah. Give you the focus to try and deliver on behalf of the president and the country. Amazing. So so I've watched like a, a few documentaries and such about North Korea and uh, you know the level of poverty that's there, the amount of control that the government has by complete control of all communication, um, basically the entire perception of what the world view and, and what people think the world is like is dictated by the regime in place. What did you find the most surreal, or even when you saw it in person, it, it was still just completely shocking? You know, uh, I didn't get to travel the countryside, so I was just yeah, they didn't in the put capital. You on a, they didn't get it, it was, to a well decker bus. Yeah, much, much, <laughs> much like President Biden had El Paso cleaned up. <laughs> yeah, uh, I am confident that the Pyongyang was cleaned up the day that I went there as well. So I, I'm under no illusion that I, I saw the reality of what's going on there. Uh, but as CIA director, I did get a chance to understand that it's exactly as it's laid out in the movies. 25 mm-hmm. million people living in near destitute farming. He's still farming with you know oxen, wood, mm-hmm. uh, construction that is dangerous, uh, famine everywhere. It is among the most desolate places I have ever seen. And even in the urban environment where there's any wealth that Pyongyang has is, is centralized and focused, you could even see it there. Mm-hmm. Uh, buildings that weren't finished when we left. I think it was my second visit. When we left in the evening, um, almost none of the lights were on, even downtown, right? They have enough electricity to power the country just for a few hours a day in the city. This is a total hermit kingdom, right? Completely sealed environment. And my guess is if you met with most of the North Korean people, they would come to think that this was how the rest of the world lived. Amazing. Hmm. That's amazing. Well, you enjoyed the distinction of not only serving the president, having the president's confidence and trust, but also everybody else you work with, right? And your relationships on Capitol Hill allowed for you to have sort of broader conversations. People knew who you were. And ultimately, when you became Secretary of State, it seemed from my perspective from the outside that people were, they want to talk to you, right? Yeah. You had you had this sort of open book that not everybody in the Trump administration had about the give and take of information that you were finding around the world. Yeah. 
um, I, w- I was very fortunate that the path took me from the House Intelligence Committee uh, to CIA, where I got a chance to work in uh, secure setting, quiet settings with a whole bunch of senators, Republican and Democrat alike. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was an enormous benefit to me. I think it was an enormous benefit to the president as well. Yeah, I agree. And then I, I kind of had some experience with these folks. Some, not all of it good, <laughs> uh, but but some experience. And uh, no one ever hesitated to pick up the phone. I think they knew it was a way to communicate with a part of the Trump administration that was thoughtful and rational. Might not always agree with them, um, but you could have a serious conversation, express your views, and at least be heard. And yep. so I, I got my fair share of that, and I was I was happy to do it. And that's, that's part of when you talk about, you know, breaking some China, for lack of a better, better word, or, you know, challenging norms. Um, it seemed like you had a little bit more rope with people than anybody <laughs> else, right? I mean, you, you got an opportunity to at least explain your point of view and why things should go a little differently than they had in the past. I did. I, w- I was viewed as uh, a relatively known quantity. Mm-hmm. Having said, I mean, I was in House of Representatives for six years, yeah. uh, but I'd, I'd interacted with them at some level that they thought, hey, he's, he's, this guy's not dumb. He's thinking about it. He's thinking about <laughs> it. Um, he's happy to listen to, uh, talk in the book a lot about uh, the primary leadership skill that we all need to make sure we learn is to listen. Mm-hmm. Talk about a, uh, NCO named Sergeant First Class Pretree, who, when I was a young lieutenant, <laughs> I saluted me because I was a senior guy and then said, Lieutenant, you'll do really well if you just shut up for a while. <laughs> and uh, it's a great lesson because if we all just shut up a little bit more and listened, you can learn an awful lot. Doesn't mean you have to change your judgment or your views, right? but you'll, you'll, you'll be armed with the tools you need when you have to deliver on behalf of the country as well. And so I, I did a lot of listening to leaders, world leaders around the world, and folks back here at home as well. What would you think if you're looking back on all of the challenges? I mean, I don't even know how you rank them, right? We've got Iran, North Korea, clearly Russia to some extent, obviously China. Where do you rank these in terms of the most challenging experiences you had during your tenure? Far and away the greatest challenge is the Chinese Communist Party because the uh, the interconnectedness is so deeply woven into the American fabric today that we were constant. So we... And I give General McMaster some credit uh, when he was a national security advisor. We began to turn the ship from deep, deep engagement to uh, red light danger. Mm-hmm. Uh, call it whatever you want, adversary, enemy, describe it however. But we've let the Chinese Communist Party walk on uh, our faces for decades. They mm-hmm. built their economy on the backs of the American worker by stealing their knowledge. Uh, and we just we flipped the switch. And boy, the resistance was staggering. And that's what makes this such a complex problem. You have a very powerful, uh, very capable country intent on global domination, and they own most of America's major businesses. Mm. And when I say own, it's not that they own the equity shares. It's that those companies are so dependent on them for their continued – their business model depends on access to the Chinese Communist Party. And so we would push back. I came to love Secretary Mnuchin. Uh, We became good friends. We worked closely together. But on China, all he would hear was from Wall Street and about what enormous opportunities there were. And so we would have – we end up with very different visions. They're like, Mike, Mike, thanks for all the help. This has been great. (laughs) That's exactly (laughs) – yeah, there you go. That's a pretty good summary. It it, it wasn't that we disagreed on the objective. It was the tools that we were prepared to use, the risk we were prepared to take on to confront them was different. Yeah. And and when you're talking about the resistance that you faced, like we're just now hearing reports of how the, you know, the Biden think tank where they found confidential documents has received tens of millions of dollars from the Chinese government. Right. So the way that the the, the CCP has sunk their claws into 
corporate America, the administrative state. Higher education, as you Higher just education. said. Yeah. I spend a lot of time on this in the book. When we talk about China, everybody immediately sort of thinks Taiwan. And that all seems, for the average American, that seems a long ways away. The truth is the Chinese Communist Party's inside the gates. The, the, the greatest operation I ran wasn't a CIA director. That's not true. The greatest operation I can talk about <laughs> <laughs> that I ran as a, wasn't a CIA director. It was a secretary of state. They, literally, the Chinese Communist Party was running a spy ring out of their diplomatic facility in Houston, Texas. The largest spy operation, I think, ever inside of America. We, we've all watched wow. the Russians, and we all know the great spy movies, Sign Me Up. Right. They, they were running. Uh, they were stealing secrets from our energy industry. They were stealing secrets from the University of Texas medical system. I mean, they were. And so, by the way, we knew this. And, but no, the Secretary of State essentially controls access through the consulates. And so I'm like, no, we're not going to let this happen. And made a pitch to the president. Director of FBI, Chris Ray and I put an operation together, closed the thing down. Uh, we set them back years. Mm. That was a, that was a remarkable operation in, in, in so many ways, um, and fun too. I got a chance to call the ambassador, the Chinese ambassador, the U.S. to my office, which you don't ever get a chance to do. Yeah, that's and say, hey, you got seventy two hours to get out of your facility in Houston, Texas. And of course, he pushes back. Oh, we're not spying from there. <laughs> this is crazy. You're deranged. I can't remember how he described me. Ten minutes later, on my TV in my office, there are pictures of local television stations saying. The Houston Fire Department has been called to the consulate, <laughs> the Chinese consulate in Houston, Texas. Big fires in the oh, building, okay. so really, you know, nothing to see here was a complete Amazing. lie. And so, to your point about uh, money uh, and propaganda efforts, they, uh, there are three hundred sixty thousand Chinese students studying in our universities today. Uh, they're not all here because they want to study American civics. Mm -hmm. um, they are running operators at our city councilmen and our county commissioners. They're providing research dollars in our universities. I tell a story. Um, I was denied the ability to speak at several major U.S. universities because they thought I might say mean things about China on their campus. That's terrific. That's terrific. Horrific. Um, I, I talked in the book. It was The first one was MIT. I was actually going to give uh, some remarks on Chinese influence at the university system. We'd worked on this speech for four or five months. They'd said I could come. They found out what the topic was, and we were told we are not, we are not open for that. It took us seven or eight tries. From a sitting Secretary of State. Sitting Secretary of State. Interesting. I picked up the phone, called uh, the right people there. And said, look, this isn't about politics. I'm not going to campaign here. This is literally, I hear, you can have my speech in advance. You can't change it, but you can see that I'm not, this isn't about, like, I'm not, this isn't a Republican coming. This is Secretary of State coming about an important national security matter. I gave the speech in the end at Georgia Tech. They were mm -hmm. kind enough to permit me to come speak there. And you should know that the Chinese Communist Party has, in fact, taken reprisals mm -hmm. against that place. Uh, and so... Um, they have an awful lot of influence and a lot of control, and a Secretary of State wasn't permitted to speak about an important national security matter because MIT is indeed so dependent on Chinese money. On in his own country, I mean that that's eye opening. That's it was heart. It was both disturbing. Um, I probably used some bad words too. Yeah, um, but also heartbreaking. It's also tough because the balance there. China is such a closed off society, right? And there's no way of sort of infiltrating with american culture that point of view right yeah. and and so there's this this great tug and pull between allowing some american culture to be into into the chinese people and yet then you hear about university systems that are entirely co-opted by yeah. china it's like there's got to be some balance there right somewhere in the end the way to think about policy is reciprocity 
whatever we're permitted to do there, they can do here. Mm. You are constrained. We are an open society, so you won't you won't get to perfection. Mm. But we really ought to think about reciprocity as the central guiding principle. Um, what's a good example? Land purchases. We've all seen these stories uh, of the yeah. Chinese buying land near American military facilities. Every one of your listeners should go today, call their real estate agent, tell them they'd like to purchase some land in China near a Chinese military base. (laughs) (laughs) They won't get the land and they might get arrested. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly if they traveled to China, they would. Uh, It's just crazy, right? We just allowed them to use our open society against us in ways that we were not required to do by our constitution and we should limit them the same way they limit us. I think that'll do two things. It'll reduce risk. That is, it'll play some good defense, but we'll also begin to put pressure inside of their country. Mm-hmm. When true reciprocity exists, the Chinese people will begin to see that it's not working, and you you will start to chip away at the power of Xi Jinping himself. Hmm. Interesting. If Very you, interesting. If you had a magic wand and there were three things you could do to yeah. counter Chinese Great. influence, Great you, you could do them tomorrow. Like, what would those be? Um... I would uh, shut off uh, Chinese access to our 50 leading research institutions, some of them private, some of them public. Today, you've got Chinese passport holders studying, doing research there, often with Chinese money. So that would be step one. Huge implications for uh, technology issues, blockchain, AI, Mm. quantum stuff. Mm. Uh, If they're going to be good at it, force the Chinese to do it themselves, not steal it from us. Right. Um, Second, I would... Uh, begin to build out even deeper partnerships with our friends in the region that are military in nature and diplomatic in effect. So think China, excuse me, think India, South Korea, Mm -hmm. Japan, Philippines, Vietnam, Singapore, begin to build the infrastructure there to raise the cost for Chinese activity that might deny us the ability to do commercial trafficking, commercial traffic in that region. Those alliances will matter. India is a billion people. They're right. going to be the linchpin, the fulcrum of whether the West prevails or whether a more Marxist Chinese ideology takes place. Last one uh, may surprise you a little bit. Uh, the last one's here at home. The last one is deeply domestic. We have to get our schools right. If you teach our kids that we're a racist nation, a story mm-hmm. that the Chinese diplomats tell our diplomats, you remember when Secretary Blinken goes to Alaska to Anchorage, the first thing the Chinese foreign minister says to him is, look at BLM, look at the riots in your streets. Look yep. at this, right? They are, they are pushing an American decline narrative across the United States. We have to confront that in our schools. And so uh, you need to teach real history, good and bad. Teach about slavery, teach about uh, the civil rights movement, very important. But this is a good nation, most exceptional nation in the history of civilization. Mm -hmm. And if we get that wrong, China will be able to do all of this activity here against us at home that 20, 25, 30 years from now, there'll be no resistance to what it is Xi Jinping's intending to do. So there's three, yeah, those are good. three, three ideas that one could do today to begin to put us in the right track. Has it blown your mind that it's taken as long as it has for something like TikTok to come on the yep. radar uh, of the federal government? Because, I mean, to me, from an outsider's <laughs> standpoint, I look at it and it's like, okay, well, you're, you're capturing all of a generation's data. At the same time, you're unleashing propaganda, as you just said. I mean, the, the topics that you just yeah. laid out is exactly what's going on there. Yeah, but then I, I, it's surprising. But then if you look at the institutions designed to deliver American security, you can see it. <laughs> so think about the State Department. How did you get promoted to the State Department for the last 40 years? It wasn't by calling out TikTok, letting your diplomats meet with the Taiwanese government, 
or confronting the Chinese in a serious way. It was by saying, hey, let's go have an international organization meeting at the UN and get along with our, right? The, right. All the incentives, all the structures of the established were built around a model of engagement for 40 years. Yeah. And that doesn't undo itself. It only gets undone when the A, the American people demand it, or B, some leader stands up and says, what, what, what the blank are we doing? <laughs> and begins to just both chip away at it and tell the story. Right. And so I tried to do both of those things. I tried to chip away at that. We did, although... You know, there's just so much more to do. We we got to like the first step on the 12 step program is I have a problem. Yeah. <laughs> we kind of got to I have a problem and left a lot on the table. Right. And then I also spent time here in the states talking to my speech at, about the university problem. I I spoke to the National Governors Association with on a, on a, on a great Saturday afternoon where I, I told them the Chinese government is monitoring you, you governor from Vermont. Yeah, you. And they are declared they've declared whether you are a friend foe or i'm working on them just know that and you should have seen the look in the governor's face these are governors in the united states of america thinking well that's an american problem no this is a problem for city councilmen and governors and uh, faith leaders the chinese communist party is working everywhere but as eric swalwell found as, out as eric yeah. swalwell found out. <laughs> no no that's right and, and what we, your point is exactly right you have this is going to have to be driven by a group of folks who rise up and say we're going to fix it and when they do things like tiktok will become like no oh crap we, yeah. we got that wrong right. and we'll, we'll go fix it and when we do they're not 10 feet tall this is not an insurmountable thing we crushed right. the soviet union too we, we'll do this as well but you have to start actually confronting it and if we don't uh, we'll live in a very different America, and that's just unacceptable. So I have a question. So you'd mentioned uh, to all these governors, you said you're all being monitored. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you first arrived at the CIA, was there kind of like a you know uh, uh, introduction segment where they tell you all the scary stuff, and you're just like, oh my god? <laughs> is there one? Yeah, is, that's a great question. Is there an hour? Like, like yeah, you're going to have to sit down. It was us with yeah. JFK, but don't tell anyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here, yeah. Here's, here's your waste ba- basket if you you got to throw up. You yeah. Know? <laughs> Most of that's funny. That JFK thing, that's not funny. <laughs> most, most of that's funny. Uh, yeah, so you do. You get read right into all the programs, all the stuff that's going on. It's uh, remarkable. Um, do you, uh, the American people should know uh, that, that you've got great young men and women who've decided, I want to go uh, help America be safer and more secure. And I want to do it in the dark. I want to put a knife in my teeth and go do some fun stuff. They're out there doing really great things. And uh, there's bad apples. My predecessor, Director Brennan, was a bad apple. Oh my from gosh, the no kidding! But the team, the team that is there, much like our FBI agents doing drug busts on the streets in Milwaukee, and much like our soldiers serving in dangerous places, the team out at the Central Intelligence Agency is pretty remarkable. And to see the work, and I take no credit for this; this all predated me. To, to see the work that they've done over decades, putting America in a place where its leaders can have the best intelligence anywhere in the world to make good decisions is mind-blowing and stunning and something i think if any of you had the chance to do that uh you'd you'd feel the enormous privilege and responsibility came alongside of it as well no it's it's fascinating does it it it's got to just break your heart then to see like brennan Mm -hmm. for example yeah or clapper right his predecessors who basically took to the cable tv circuit to infer because of their clearances that they knew things that weren't true Right. And, and, and they, I think the overall impression of not only a CIA, FBI, and, you know, the quote unquote deep state everywhere was formulated, at least off the right side, in large part because of what these guys were doing. 
I, t- I totally agree with you. Uh, it not only breaks my heart, it is dangerous yeah. what Brennan and Clapper and Comey all did. And frankly, a bunch of other former seniors of the intelligence community as well. The Hunter Biden laptop story is yeah. the perfect vignette. It's, it's only a vignette because I saw many, many, many examples of this, but it's the perfect vignette where they knew. And yet they put the you know the little predicate of the sentence in the front that says, well, we haven't seen it, but this but. looks right. They, 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 in their heart, they, they knew this wasn't fake. And by the time the New York Post wrote, everyone knew this was real. Mm-hmm. And yet they maintained the story. I saw yesterday that at least one of them actually acknowledged it, that it was fake. I got to go see if that's actually true. Hmm. But it looked like one of them announced, yeah, yeah we got to know. Um, so it's bad in the instance. It's bad because it may have impacted the election and what the American people knew in the run-up to the election. So that's bad. But your point's the the greater one, the more important one. It undermines every American's confidence in right. these important institutions. And you can't have that because these institutions have to be straight and not political and actually delivering on security and not working against a political, a particular political opponent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you lose confidence in these institutions, uh, in the way that I have, frankly, I'm watching the FBI today and it's just hard to figure mm-hmm. if we still have a problem there. It looks like we may still well. Uh, Every every elected political leader has a responsibility first and foremost to make these institutions are capable and transparent and straight up. Mm-hmm. And then and only then to make sure that it executes the priorities that they have laid out. If we don't have confidence in them, yeah, it doesn't matter. The, 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 this, is, this is what the Chinese Communist Party is counting on. Yeah, this is what they want. Yeah. No question about it. Let me shift topics to Iran for a minute because I think this one is <laughs> – as important as anything that you are a part of. I mean, clearly, the the sort of peak of hostilities, the Soleimani, when uh, when President Trump sent the gift of a missile uh, to Soleimani, <laughs> yeah. and and the fallout. What I'm curious about, and you may cover some of this in the book, but what I'm curious about is, you had to know this was going to become. I mean, there could be reprisals, there could be immediate tension to the extent that we haven't had you know, for 50 years, much more so after that. I I didn't anticipate the personal reprisals. Mm-hmm. Um, we were most concerned about reprisals against our soldiers in the field right. or American interests somewhere around the world. So the work we did to mitigate risk was all aimed at, at that. Um, we, we did know we were doing something that no other administration would have done. Mm-hmm. Frankly, I, I look at the list of folks who were running for president. I supported Marco Rubio in the race. I might have taken Donald Trump to actually do this mm-hmm. <laughs> because the institutional Washington all knew Qasem Soleimani had killed hundreds of Americans. Right? This this guy wasn't a secret to any of us. No, didn't need intelligence to know that. Uh, and every time they'd had the chance, they'd said, "Nope, not going to do it." Could cause World War Three. I began to work as CIA director along with some intelligence partners, including Mossad. I talk about this in the book to help deliver for the president a Middle East security set of policies. Uh, and to confront Iran, the world's largest state sponsor of terror. And then I became Secretary of State, and some of the work I'd done in my previous role gave us this chance. And we could also see, importantly, not only had he killed 500 uh, of our soldiers and Marines, but he was trying to do it again. Mm. And so he was actively engaged in further terror plotting in Iraq. Uh, We figured out he was traveling from Beirut to Damascus to Beirut and that we had an opportunity so I traveled down to Mar-a-Lago, briefed the president, December 29th or so of 19. I think about this. This is literally as we are learning about COVID as well. Mm-hmm. A lot going on. I briefed the president. Um, the president said, 
you bet. Let's go do it. We, we needed to do it not only to stop that particular plot and to push back against it, um, but we were losing deterrence against the Iranians, too. They were firing artillery at our embassy in Baghdad almost right. every day. Uh, they'd shot down two American UAVs. We hadn't done enough. They'd fired ballistic missiles into a place called Abqaiq. Uh, in Saudi Arabia where there were Americans working and we'd, we'd not done enough. The Iranians were feeling their oats. When we took the Soleimani strike, uh, they stopped feeling <laughs> their oats. Uh, and it was important not only to push back against Iran, but it was fascinating to to read uh, the intelligence in the days that followed. Uh, the Chinese noted what we did. Mm. Assad in Syria noted what we did. Chairman Kim in North Korea noted no what we did, right? That, and I think the note is, like, it's like, these guys are different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah. When they say they're going to do something, I'd sent a letter to Soleimani some months before that telling him, we're not going to go just take out some knucklehead in the desert. If you come after Americans, we're coming after Iranian assets. And uh, his story is he didn't read the letter. I promise you he read the letter. <laughs> uh, and when you make that kind of commitment and don't follow through, you are done. We made the commitment. We followed through, and the whole world took note of it. And for the next what, uh, the last year plus of our time in office, you could see that that strike itself had demonstrated deterrence, just in the in the most fundamental way that Ronald Reagan would have applauded as well. Exactly. Well, and you could see the shift after the Biden administration took charge in the Afghanistan debacle. Putin clearly having no fear going into Ukraine, right? She teaming up with him, trying to see how that goes so we can figure out Taiwan. I mean, exactly to your point, right? Yeah. I mean, if you're not drawing lines and following through, the world takes notice. I, uh, I describe it this way with respect to what's going on in Europe today. Uh, I spend enough time with Putin to know he's not going to change. He's been the same <laughs> guy. I almost used a bad word again. He's been the same guy for a long time. He, greater Europe is in his DNA. He takes a fifth of Ukraine under President Obama. He doesn't move an inch under our four years. And within weeks, he's back at attacking Europe again. Coincidence? Now, what changed? No, it wasn't It wasn't Putin to change. What changed was his perception of risk and his perception of what America might do. And when you lose that, you, getting it back is a nightmare. Yeah. And, uh, and so the strike on Soleimani was an effort to maintain the very deterrence that we needed to make sure we maintained, not only with respect to the regime in Iran, but more broadly as well. Well, I suspect that this, what we're talking about here, is why you are considering taking the incredible, (laughs) unbelievably daunting uh, task of potentially running for president into consideration. There's still work to do, Uh, and these things matter. Uh, Sometimes they seem far away. I view China as a domestic threat. Iran is certainly one here at home. You can see in Europe, you can see what happens when red winter wheat is more expensive. Kansas farmers make some money, uh, but the people who are buying bread and uh, goods that contain wheat suffer. Yeah, um, there's still a lot of work to do. We we made some progress, but and we broke a lot of things. Now it's time to go build, and it's going to take. It's going to take every bit by the by the, the internal stuff like fixing the bureaucracies at justice and at education and at state uh this is a uh, this is a long deep eight-year all-on project and uh i i pray that america will elect a leader that's prepared to do it whether whether i'll end up running or not only only the good lord knows at this point yeah because why else would you do it right i mean unless you felt pretty convicted about this you, this you better be, seem you, like you a- better have a conviction both that you believe it needs to be done and a theory of the case on how to 
actually get it done. Right. You got so, it, both of those things. So a while back, I was speaking with a member of Congress, and I said, uh, you know, why aren't you more hard on China and on Iran? And uh, they said to me, you think I want to sleep on a military base like Mike Pompeo has to with his wife. Is that is that a true story to begin with? Uh, true story. Uh, I lived on a military base during my time as Secretary of State for uh, almost exclusively security reasons. Um, but that member of Congress should not be fearful. That's what I was thinking. Is, is, is Number one, if it's a true story, then it's just like, well. Yeah. Um, so it's a true story uh, in the sense of I ended up living on a military facility as my time as Secretary of State, uh, along with my wife. It was fine. I loved it. Soldiers marching in formation, like what's not to like, right? <laughs> I, I also had the, I, I had the privilege to walk out my back door, and I could see Arlington Cemetery reminding me every morning at 5 in the morning why I was doing what I was doing. Um, you know, but uh, your bigger point's a really good one. So I was sanctioned by China on January 20th, just about five minutes after I left office. Uh, why'd they sanction me? It doesn't change my life. They were sending a message to Secretary Blinken mm. and to members of Congress and to Jake Sullivan, right? All of whom, by the way, Blinken, Sullivan, those all made their living connecting Chinese companies to America. This is how say, they yep. put and, food and, on their table. And probably endeavor to sit on boards. And they're, <laughs> they are sending a message to those folks, behave like Pompeo and you won't be able to go back to that mm. after your time in service. So it is not an accident that you hear some member of Congress say those things. It is exactly the response that the bad actors are looking for, and it is precisely the response our leaders can never give them. Hmm. Yeah, because it goes back to that issue of reciprocity that you'd mentioned earlier, and that we need a new posture with China based on reciprocity, because all the way back from you know allowing them into the WTO, they've taken advantage of our openness, and there is no reciprocity. And you've talked here at the high level of like, you know, a secretary of state or whoever, but they're downstream in the supply chain. I, I think about things like rare earths, for example, mm. and China kind of coming into Afghanistan now and trying to control more of those things that our future economy is going to run on. And you've hit on a lot of things that you would do vis-a-vis -vis China. Can you talk a little bit about those economic supply chains? And, and Because I feel like in what we're talking about with the 2024 presidential race, this is one thing, like a national plan for how we're going to counter that, I think is critical for the next president. I think you're exactly right. The first thing I mentioned was was designed to get at this very issue as well. So President Trump was focused on the trade imbalance. And it's the right. phase one trade deal like that the trade imbalance is an outcome from a set of policies that were just a that there was no reciprocity for decades. Uh, we got to go fix that. How do, how do you begin to do that? You start with things that impact national security directly and expand outward from there. So we passed Chip Act, Chips Act was passed a couple months back now. That actually began with me and Secretary Ross talking to a company called TSMC, building semiconductors mm -hmm. that frankly, they're, they're all around us right here. Mm -hmm. uh, building semiconductors, we depend on them. If they're solely in the control of the Chinese Communist Party, that will end badly for us here at home every single day. And so... Uh, the CHIPS Act became imperfect, but the concept is spot on. Yeah, mm -hmm. The concept is, uh, damn it, they've been stealing our stuff. Stop letting them steal it. Second, let's build it at home, or at least in Western countries that we can count on. 
Yeah, if we have access to the supply the chain. The Germans really, counted right. on Russian gas. Today, we're counting on Chinese semiconductors. Right, right, These right. Are the, the parallels are unmistakable. Because ultimately, they don't want to just put the screws to you or to Secretary Blinken. No. They want to put the screws to the entire American economy. By Absolutely. Choking off these points in the supply Precisely chain. Precisely. Right. I'll give you a great example. Uh, and by the way, how good they are at this. During the campaign in 16, the Chinese Communist Party knew that there were a lot of Republicans in a particular county in Wisconsin that grew ginseng. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They put sanctions on ginseng. I mean, th- this is really good. So this is really like, right. good on you, man. Game on. Right? You're serious about this. No, this, the, the war between the United States and China is an economic war. Mm-hmm. The problem is the Chinese have been at it for 40 years and we never showed up. <laughs> right. Right. Mm-hmm. We just pretended it did not exist. The first thing we got to do is confront it, acknowledge it as a war. And then whether it's Huawei or TikTok or the, the fact that Apple depends nearly solely on Ch- a Chinese supply chain. And you talked about rare earths and some of the other things. I would even expand that to, we saw the problem with medical equipment, pharmaceuticals. Right. Oh, right. You, these are things the American people are counting on the United States government to have its act together, and we don't. And it won't, can't do it in a day, can't do it in a month, but over the course of a, a serious and determined Congress, working with a serious and determined president, you can actually begin to put these things in places that we will continue to have access to. And when you get that right and you take that lever away from the Chinese Communist Party, you get the double whammy. You get the second order benefit of now the Chinese no longer have leverage in the way that we saw that they did. Right. One of the reasons why I love that you're considering running for president is because you're explaining these things, Mm -hmm. right? You're introducing it to a primary electorate that certainly isn't going to take the Biden administration's view of how we process these sort of things to the extent that they even have a view on any of it, right? (laughs) But, But also... Look, we've been become focused in a Republican primary audience on a bunch of things that are sort of like postcards, right? Or, or bumper stickers. Some of it requires a little bit more explanation. And you, amongst anybody that I've been around, have an ability to talk about these things in a way that actually makes sense to people. You don't have to be an expert in foreign policy or Chinese policy or around. You could or, be a machine shop guy from Wichita. You could be a machine exactly. shop guy and you can figure it out. So, so if you ran for president, I guess my question is, how much of that is you getting in to try to explain this stuff? Yeah, it's important. We, we, by the way, it's not only important to get the right policy, but we, you owe it to the American people. Yeah. Not to. Look, I can throw bombs with the best of them. Sign me up. Yeah. I, can, I can do the bumper sticker. I can own the libs. It's all good. <laughs> um, and that may be necessary, I suppose, but it is not sufficient. Yeah. Uh, it's not remotely sufficient. It's not completing the, the duty that you have to, to try and explain like, why this stuff matters. If I, I was in Wichita. I was, like, I was going to church, teaching fifth grade Sunday school. Watching sports, being with my friends, all, all the things that the Ameri- this is why we do what we do, right? Yeah. It's what annoys the Taliban so greatly, right? Right. Uh, the, right n- nothing annoys the Taliban like the Super Bowl. Like, <laughs> look at people them. having fun at bars. It's like nothing. Um, but this is why we do it, so that we can yeah. all have the freedom to go do the things we want. It means that you have to take the time to try and articulate. It's hard in campaigns, yeah, uh, because to get people's attention who are busy is, is difficult stuff. But I think if you, it's not, it's not talking down to. It's not even simplifying. It's Americans intuitively get this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is taking the time to, to link these things together, to say this policy that we have here is actually going to impact your ability to worship at your church. Mm. This, this thing we're doing over here in the Middle East could put your grandson in a place where he might actually have to go fight and die in some far-off place in the sand someday. And if we can fix these things, then 
we won't have to do those really hard things someday. And I, I, uh, I've tried to explain them as best I can, and I, I still enjoy doing that. And I, uh, I'll do that no matter what I end up doing. Well, God uh, bless because, you. Because it matters. A, a, yeah. a Wichita guy who's burdened by the responsibility that has <laughs> come his way. We thank you for thank doing you it. All. Uh, the book is Never Give an Inch. It comes out... Uh, 24th of January. 24th of January. MikePompeo.com. MikePompeo.com will good, be Good there. Italian name and then a dot-com deal. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Thanks for joining us. Sam. Thank you all very much. Man, that guy is so good. Yeah. I, I mean, look, what he does better than anybody is explain very complex foreign policy in a way that all of us can understand. And having been in the room for a whole bunch of really smart people trying to explain foreign policy to me over the years, he's the only guy who takes a super, super complex issue and boils it down to how it makes sense and why people in this country domestically should care, mm-hmm. right? Because it's so easy to look at the world and be like, I don't give a shit. It doesn't affect my taxes. It doesn't affect whatever. It turns out it does. Well, especially when you're dealing with China, right? Because yep. you're not really talking about just a foreign policy issue. You're talking about a national security issue. You're talking about a trade issue, an economic issue, a diplomatic issue. There's all these facets, yep. right, in in our relationship with China and what we're going to do to confront them in the future. And so I think his voice is really important on all that stuff. Yep, yep. Well done, fellas. I got to say, absolute banger of an episode, gentlemen. Thank you so much to Mike Pompeo. That was a fantastic interview. Really enjoyed it. So until next time, minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. We'll see you on Thursday. Stay ruthless. 